It's for us. There, there are people that are struggling in the world that need to have some hope. And I believe even leading up to Easter, this is a time I just want to encourage you. Think about who do I know that needs some good news in their life. Somebody that could use a little dose of, man, there is hope and a future for you. And you need to come hear about it. You need to get connected somewhere where there's going to be life given to you. So take this season, this opportunity, just to begin to think about, who God, who are you laying on my heart? Who do I care so much about that I see them in life and what they're going through? And I know they need good news like what we've been talking about. If, if you've been around for any length of time, you know that, that part of our mission here at New Life Fellowship is to help people encounter Jesus. Because when he shows up in the midst of their situation, it can't help but get better. He transforms lives. He causes situations to be filled with hope and life and a future. And that's what we're doing here. And, and if, I love when we come together and worship. Because I really feel like his spirit's here. His presence is here. Jesus promised I'd be right here in the middle of you if you gather in my name. So he's here and we're connecting to him when we worship. But there are people that aren't here that need to know him and come and connect with him and meet him. So that's part of what we're about. We are about connecting people to Jesus. And uh, so what we've been talking about the last few weeks, and eventually if, if slides appear, it'll be good, but I'll just, I'll just fill it in. This is like old school. You're just actually going to have to look at the preacher and listen to what I'm saying this morning. Uh, what we've been talking about the last few weeks, whether or not we think it's getting better in the future, our outlook is important because it affects how we act right now. What, what we think about tomorrow and a year from now five years from now, it actually has an influence on what we're doing today, how we think, how we act, and how we talk. So this, this is re- very critical, what we're talking about, to shape our outlook for the future. Uh, we coined a phrase called kingdom optimism. How many of you are enjoying being a kingdom optimist? I mean, this is not just being optimistic because I hope it's going to get better, but because Jesus does something. He did something on the cross that impacted eternity forever. And we can have hope and faith that things are improving and getting better because of what he has already done. And uh, we actually built a biblical case a few weeks ago and, and through this whole series. We built a biblical case for our outlook ought to be that things are getting better in the world because of what Jesus has done. Because our outlook should always come from the Bible. Look at your neighbor say, I love the Bible. And, and if, if, if that wasn't a true statement or you're not entirely sure, keep saying it and keep reading it till, till you get to a place where you do. Uh, last week, we, we also wrapped up last week by saying that our outlook matters because we have authority, because we've been given authority from Jesus Christ, and we have the ability to influence others. So our outlook and what we're thinking about the future matters. And today, what I want to get to today, this is, this is an ambitious task and a big plan that I have today, but I, am, I want to answer the questions of were the good old days really that good? Who, who loves thinking about the good old days? Who, maybe you know somebody that they've talked about, oh, the good old days, if we could just go back to fill in the blank for whatever period of time it was. So I'm going to answer the question is, were the good old days really that good? And then I want to answer the question, is Christianity on the rise or the decline? What is God actually doing in terms of spreading the gospel and expanding the kingdom in terms of the church and believers around the world and Christians and what is happening? And in the next couple of weeks after that, we'll look at some other factors. But today, what's happening with Christians? Are we growing? Are we shrinking? Are we on the run? Or are we advancing? So we're going to look at those questions today. And a key verse that we've been looking at is Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7. Uh, if you can go to the next screen, I've read it enough. Can we read this one together today? How about that? Let's read this verse together. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, 
establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Doesn't that feel good just to say that together and just to read those things? The increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end to the increase of it. When I look at that verse and I see there will be no end to the increase, either things are getting better or the other options aren't really that good. When, when we read that verse and we say, okay, God promised that when Jesus came, he would release his kingdom into the world and it would continue to increase forever. Either that means it's increasing right now and things are getting better, or what are the bad options? If, if I read that verse and it's not true, the bad options are either God was lying or he's not powerful enough to do what he promised. If those are the other two options, I'm going to go with that verse is true. And, and even if my mind can't wrap around it right now, I'm going to believe that God is expanding his kingdom right now and that things are getting better because I'm not going to go down the, the rabbit hole of either God's lying or he can't do what he promised. So we need to get our, like again, we get our outlook from the word of God because it's true even when everything else we see isn't. When his kingdom begins to increase, life Family, peace, health, all these things begin to prosper. Righteousness is is appearing on the scene. Those are things that increase when his kingdom increases. And we can see it if we look for it. How many of you realize you you often see what you're looking for? We we said it a few weeks ago. I don't even remember what series we were in. I said, if if I say white cars and you go out in the parking lot, what are you going to see? You're going to notice every white car in the parking lot. It's like that with our outlook. If we gear ourselves towards, I'm going to look for where Jesus is on the move and what he's doing in the earth. You know what you're going to start seeing? You're going to start seeing good news. You're going to start seeing Jesus on the move and doing stuff in the earth today. So we need to be looking for it so we can see it. And that that brings up a couple questions, I think. I get people often that they say, well, what about all the bad news that we see? Has anybody ever seen any bad news, even this week? You, you turn on the TV, you look online, you're seeing, what are you seeing? You're seeing some bad news. What, what about all that bad news? How, Pastor Chris, how can you say things are getting better in the world when I see all the bad news? Can I give you a secret? The stuff that you see on TV has always been happening. Come on. I, ISIS is, is killing people and they videoed it and they put it online and, and these horrible things are happening. We come up with all these bad news things. They've always been going on. You just have more access now. Come on, there, we live in a world where you know what's happening. There, there were times in history where whole nations got wiped out, genocide of entire people groups, and nobody heard a word about it. And today we live in a society that you're walking down the street and you get punched in the face and it's on Facebook. Or it's, it's on somebody's live streaming it before you hit the ground when somebody punches you. We have access now that no other generation in history has ever had. And what is different, how can you say things are getting better? Because now when people have that access, they see things like the the atrocities committed overseas in some of those countries and the terrorists and all these things. People around the world see those things and they're horrified by it. And they begin to say, you know, that's evil. We, We need to do something about that. Can't we change what's happening in the world? And I believe there's something, even when we see the bad news, there's something now inside of people that they recognize that's not good. And that needs to change. And that is different than people living years ago that had, you know, you used to have to wait for news. If something happened on the other side of Europe, when would you hear about it? 
maybe three, four months later, you know, after, after the town crier came and somebody wrote a letter and then it came across the ocean on a boat, and now we know about it and we can do something about it. Well, that explains the bad news, but, you know, I look around me, what about that next generation? Or have you ever had somebody says, what about those kids? Come on, whatever group of kids it may be, has anybody ever said that to you? What about those kids? I see what they're doing. And, and can I tell you right now, Every single generation has had some point in time where they complained about what was happening in the next generation coming behind them, where, where they looked, I can't believe how those kids are acting. And I have, I have a couple quotes that I just want to read you real fast from history that I went back and, and found uh, some things that talk about the next generation. This was in 1926. Everybody okay with me reading you a quote from 1926? Nobody, nobody, well... I was going to ask if anybody read this in person when, when it came out, but uh, I'm not going to go there. Uh, there was a magazine called the Pentecostal Evangel in 1926. They wrote this about the movies because this film was starting to come out and people were seeing movies. And they said the screen artists' beauty, their exquisite clothing, clothing, their lax habits, and their low moral standards are becoming unconsciously appropriated by the plastic minds of American youth. They're writing out about the movies in 1926. Uh, we'll go back a little bit further. 1816, this was an article that, that was in the London Times. It says, the indecent foreign dance called the waltz. Come on. I, I've heard all kinds of people in this generation complain about the dances of the next generation. It's been going on. They said, the indecent foreign dance called the waltz was introduced at the English court on Friday last. It is quite sufficient to cast one's eyes on the voluptuous intertwining of the limbs and close compression of the bodies to see that it is indeed far removed from the modest reserve, which has hitherto been considered distinctive of English females. We feel it's a duty to warn every parent against exposing his daughter to so fatal a contagion. Come on, that's the waltz they're talking about. That was 1816. Well, what about a little bit further back? 1790, the Reverend Enos Hitchcock wrote this. The free access which many young people have to romance, novels, and plays has poisoned the mind and corrupted the morals of many a promising youth. Better better watch. Don't let your kids read any plays. Like, come on, this has been going on forever. The, The previous generation looks at the generation coming up, and they're doing things that they're like, I would never do that. And they think, boy, our, our, the world is going to hell in a handbasket because of the young people. And every generation has said it. And it's just something different. Maybe, how about a little bit further back? I'll give you two more. 1695, Robert Russell wrote, I find by sad experience how the towns and streets are filled with lewd, wicked children. And many children, as they have played about in the streets, have been heard to curse and swear and call one another nicknames. And it would grieve one's heart to hear what body and filthy communications proceed from the mouths of our youth. Come on, that's 1695. I'm not going to go back to like every hundred years. I'll, I'll just skip one more. We'll go all the way back. This is 20 B.C. Okay, this is 20 years before Jesus was born. They wrote this in the book of Odes. Our sire's age was worse than our grandsires. We, their sons, are more worthless than they, and so in turn we shall give the world a progeny yet more corrupt. What are they saying? Our kids are going to be worse than, our, than we are, what our parents think about us. Every generation gets to that point. It is, it is not the young people that are the issue. 
Come on, is, is God still able to transform lives? Does the gospel still work? They're, they're just different things that every generation has to deal with, different technologies, different dances. I don't care if it's the waltz or whatever the dances are today. That shows you how far removed I am. I don't, I don't have any idea. But it's stuff that Jesus can still deal with. It's heart issues. It's what's going on inside of us that matters. And it manifests on the outside by different ways, but Jesus is still able to handle it. How about a quote from history that we can be a little more optimistic about? Uh, this is a quote from John Wesley. In, uh, he lived in the 1700s. He said, all unprejudiced persons may see with their eyes that God is already renewing the face of the earth. And we have strong reason to hope that the work he has begun will carry on unto the day of the Lord Jesus. How many of you have ever heard of John Wesley? And living in the 1700s, he said, man, I know that Jesus is able to do this. The work that he started is increasing in the earth. And if you look at it with unprejudiced eyes, what's he mean by that? How many of you know we all carry preconceptions and we all carry our opinions into a situation? And that's how we see everything, through that lens of our own opinion. And he says, if you look with unprejudiced eyes, put all of your own opinions aside for a minute and look at things. Because we, we tend to focus on things that are happening that, that we don't like or we don't agree with. And he's like, stop for a second and just look at what Jesus is doing in the earth today. So what I, what I, the first question I said I wanted to answer today is, were the good old days really that good? Uh, this is how the Bible describes the time when Jesus was born. So we just read that verse in Isaiah about the increase of his government and peace. If you back up a few verses from that in Isaiah chapter 9, this is how... The time of Jesus' birth was described by the prophet Isaiah. He says, Nevertheless, in that time of darkness and despair, it will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Or, or some translations say those living in the shadow of death. Come on, that, that is how the prophet described the time when Jesus was born. The, the, if we're looking for good old days in the past, I don't think you would describe the good old days by a land in darkness living in the shadow of death. And I just wanted to give you a, a snapshot of life in the first century. This is the world that was happening when Jesus was born, when he came on the scene. This is what life was like. The Roman Empire dominated civilization around Europe. Middle East, Africa, that whole general area, the Romans were in charge. They were known for their civilized advancements and their brutality. It went hand in hand. They weren't just nice guys that said, hey, we're going to figure out how to make our indoor plumbing happen. They killed people, and they were brutal about it. The, the gladiators, come on, that was not just a movie with Russell Crowe that we all get inspired and get good quotes out of. That was real stuff. Fights to the death were common entertainment among the people of that age. That's what was going on in the land. Uh, in, the, in Italy, about 40% of the population consisted of slaves. Come on, this is, this is why Paul wrote things to slaves, obey your masters. He wasn't condoning slavery, he just knew his audience. He realized about 40% of the people reading my letter here are probably living in slavery, and it needs to apply to them as well as to everybody else. Homosexual relationships were commonplace in the empire of Rome, especially among masters and slaves. Like, you didn't get a choice about it, it just happened to you. The total average life expectancy in the first century was 28. 
That, that includes everybody. It, it, ex, it extended a little more. If, if you could make it, make it past 15 years old, then your average life expectancy was going to be about 52. Come on, the good old days, right? About 25% of children didn't live past the first year. You know, we, in, in our society, where infant mortality has gone so low that we can't even fathom that, that one out of every four kids isn't even going to make it through the first year. That's what was going on in the first century. Women were not taught to write and could not be active in politics. There were terrorists, even in that day. Come on, there were, there were these guys named the Sakari. They had these little short daggers. They would go into big crowds of people in the marketplace and just stab people and then run away and disappear into the crowd. And it was acts of terrorism because they didn't agree with the Roman government or the Jews. Uh, so it, it always was going on. How many of you know it wasn't the good old days if a directive like kill all children under two could actually be carried out. You remember when Jesus was born and, and Herod told the guards, go find all the, the male children under two and just slaughter them. That, could, that, that order today, we'd be like, are you nuts? We're not going to do That's horrible. And back then it was like, yes, sir, we, we can do that. If, if you wanted to serve in the Roman army, your minimum service was 20 years. Think about that for a second. If, if your life expectancy is only going to be somewhere between 30 and 50 years old and you're signing up for 20 years to give to the Roman government. Until the guns were invented, more people in the history of the world died by the Roman short sword than any other weapon in history. I mean, this was not a good time to be alive. Uh, what did they worship? Most Romans and Greeks worshipped a whole bunch of different gods. And any time they, they conquered another nation, you know what they did? They absorbed their gods into their own belief system. So, so they didn't even know the true God. Uh, Roman emperors often were worshipped as divine. This is why it was so radical and Jesus got in trouble, not with just the Jews, but with the Romans, when they started calling him King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because that was the title for Caesar. And that was very... Uh, when Jesus' when Jesus's followers said that, it enraged the Romans. Uh, how about this? People in... in not just in Rome, but people around the world, people in Africa, Australia, Asia, and North America, what were they worshiping while all this was going on in Rome? They were, they were worshiping demons and ancestors, you know, dead people. They were, they were worshiping nature, all these other things except the true God. And what was going on, only one tiny nation. Talk about a land living in darkness and under the shadow of death. In the whole world, when Jesus was born, only one little nation in the Middle East had any concept at all of who the true God was. And even those people, even the Jews, hadn't heard from him. Come on, 400 years after the book of Malachi, there was this famine of the war of the Lord. They had been doing religious actions and God's life had been sucked out of it. So even the people that the only people on the whole earth that actually knew who the true God was, he wasn't even present in most of what they were doing as far as their religious ceremonies. Does that sound like the good old days to anybody else? All, all your friends that would say, wouldn't you have loved to go live when Jesus walked on the earth and be with the disciples? No, that was a terrible life back then. And Jesus, the very light of the world, was breathed into the middle of that darkness. And he began to change things. He released something that caused it to improve. And you, and you may look at that and you may say, well, you know, yeah, that was Rome. That was the first century. They were oh, they didn't have any tech. They didn't know anything back then. What about the good old days of the U.S.? 
If we'll bring you a little closer at hand. Here's, here's a little snapshot of what was happening in the United States when it was founded. So right around 1800, this is only 200 years ago now, not, not 2,000 years ago where we're like, oh, those Roman, that life was awful. This is only 200 years ago. In the early 1800s, about 5 million immigrants came to the U.S., and 20% of them came as slaves. So that there was still this issue of, of man lording it over other people. The, the age of sexual consent in most states was 9 or 10. Tell me we haven't come a long way. Anybody signing up to go back to the good old days yet? Abortion was actually legal in all states, and about 20% of pregnancies ended in abortion. There, there weren't the first anti-abortion laws actually started showing up in, the, in society around 1820 is, is when they started doing it. And even that, it was only like it, it was legal up till you felt the baby move. They called it the quickening, if you've ever done any history or study on abortion. Uh, how about this? Dueling to the death was okay to settle your disputes. How many of you have ever heard the play Hamilton, or you know who Alexander Hamilton was? You've read your school books. How many of you know how he died? He got shot to death in a duel with the vice president of the United States. Okay? <laughs> we, I think we sometimes we think those people that got elected would probably do that today if they still had an opportunity to. But that he, he had said, hey, I hate this guy that's running for vice president. And the guy got elected and said, you've defamed my honor. We're going to duel to the death. And Alexander Hamilton said, okay, he got shot, shot right in the hip and died the next morning. You could do that in the 1800s. Uh, the average alcohol consumed per person in the United States was around six gallons a year. And, and for just for a reference point, even today we think we have a problem. It's only about 2.9 gallons per capita. So it was, it was crazy. They did things to numb the pain because life wasn't that hot back then. Uh, prostitution was more widespread. How about this stat? In New York City, there was one prostitute for every 64 men. And in, in some states, it was as low as one for every 39 guys. Just, just for reference, today is like one for 43,000 in the country is what they estimate. But it, it was bad back then. Uh, church going was about the same rate as it is today. About 30 to 45 percent of people attended church regularly. Does that sound like a familiar stat that we've heard today? And, and even if you went a little further out west, it was even worse for them. They didn't even build churches. The, the wild west was wild. Okay, It, it was rough out there. And, and, and if you could find a man of God that would go out there and start a church, it was even amazing. But it was not a good place to be. Native Americans were being forced off their land and killed. You can go back and read about the Trail of Tears and forcing these people off their land and stealing from them. Thousands of Chinese people were being brought in as slave labor. To build things out in the out in the West, the railroads. Women still couldn't vote. Come on, it's, it's like oh, we've come so far from Rome, but you still couldn't vote. There there were things that women were being suppressed. Men were actually allowed to beat their wives as long as they didn't maim them. Did you ever hear the rule of thumb? You guys know what that is. You've heard, you've all heard that expression, right? There is, that's the rule of thumb. The rule of thumb meant, hey, I can beat my wife with a stick that's not any thicker than my thumb. That was, that was where that expression, the rule of thumb, came from. Does that sound like the good old days? There, there were no child labor laws. Come on, it, it wasn't until 1836 that Massachusetts finally passed a law saying you can't work kids more than 10 hours a day. And they, and they have to go to school at least three months out of the year. Throughout most of the 1800s, there was no indoor plumbing, running water, gas, electricity. Uh, even bathtubs were luxuries that only started to catch on after the Civil War. The total life expectancy, so Rome was so bad, what was going on in the U.S., total life expectancy was just over 30 now. And if, if you could make it past age 20, maybe you could live to about 60. 
it wasn't really the good old days. The, the physical, the moral, the ethical climate was not that great. Much better than Rome, but still not the good old days if you look at it that way. And what the devil wants is he wants you to live in the past and even glorify it. He wants you to be longing for, oh, those days that we had before were so good. And God wants to deal with your past and move you forward. That's his plan for us. Here's a a quote from one of the early church fathers named Origen. And he lived about 100 to 200 A.D. He said, it is evident that every form of worship will be destroyed except the religion of Christ, which alone will prevail. And indeed, it will one day triumph as its principles take possession of the minds of men more and more each day. The early church fathers saw how different Christianity was because it actually produced something. They, they had seen false religions. They had seen the things that they were battling against, and they said, Jesus is the way. He's full of power. He's full of life. We pray people get healed. Other religions pray and people stay sick. There were things that they saw that they knew Jesus can make a difference. They believed that the gospel couldn't be stopped and that it makes a difference in the quality of people's day-to-day lives. So that begs the question, is that really happening? Is the gospel expanding? Did it make a difference in our lives? And is the church growing? And, and here's a story that I want to share for you uh, that, that we often all feel this way. And in, in, uh, if you read in the book of First Kings chapter 18 and 19, you can go read a little bit about the, the life of Elijah. But if you remember the story of Elijah, he's the one, he, he had a big showdown with the prophets of Baal. Everybody remember this story? They built two altars and he said, hey, the God that answers by fire, he's God. What happened? Elijah prayed short, simple, to the point, boom, fire came down, consumed his sacrifice. They're like, man, Elijah's God is the true God. Let's kill all the false prophets. We're going to worship the God of Israel. He had this huge victory. He's, he's on a ministry high. He's thinking, man, I've got an awesome testimony that nobody can steal from me now. So, of course, what happened next? King Ahab had this, this wicked wife named Jezebel. She threatens Elijah, hey, if, it's going to be bad for me if by this time tomorrow you're not dead. Come on, this is the guy that just saw a supernatural miracle, God answering by fire, and now this lady saying, hey, we're going to kill you. Well, what would you do in that moment? We'd, we'd probably all do what Elijah did. He ran away. He's like, I am scared now, and I'm going to run. The guy that just saw fire come down out of heaven, the lady says, we're going to kill you because you just killed all the false prophets. He runs away. And this is what happens in 1 Kings 19, verse 3 and 4. It says, Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. And he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. Great man of God, full of faith and power that saw supernatural signs. He's sitting under the tree. Lord, let me die. I'm no better than my ancestors. Take my life. He was just like us. He he was a real guy that had insecurities and fears. And even after we see victories, we see God come through in our lives, something difficult comes into our lives. And next thing you know, we're praying prayers like this. Oh, Lord, I'm no better than anybody else. Can we just die now? Even in the middle of his pity party, if you read through the story, he has an angelic encounter. An angel shows up, says, eat this bread. You can run for 40 days on one meal. Come on. Even in the middle of his pity party, God's still meeting him and doing supernatural things. And there are times that God continues to intervene in our situations in spite of ourselves, in spite of us being self-centered, in spite of us being negative. He'll still show up and do stuff. But don't assume 
that he will continue to not allow us to see what we expect to have happen. I, I believe God will, God will help us and rescue us in spite of our outlook sometimes. But there will come a point in time if I believe this is what's going to happen. It's going to be bad. This is always what's going to happen. We're going to get what we expect at some point. And God, praise God in his graciousness. He still rescues us out of the middle of those things sometimes. So Elijah goes to Mount Horeb. He, he gets to a cave there and spends the night. If you remember the story, God came down to talk to him. There was an earthquake. There was a fire. He, God wasn't in those things. And that's where we get the phrase, oh, listen for the still small voice of God. Because that's God came and began to whisper him, Elijah, what are you doing? And in 1 Kings 19, verse 13, it says, A voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites, it's those people again, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the reason I wanted to read this passage this morning and talk about what's Christianity been doing in the world is because I want to remind us, you're not the only one. Our church isn't the only one. There, Jesus is on the move around the world. And, and this is what Elijah wrestled with because sometimes we feel like this. We get in our workplace or we get in school and we're trying to take a stand for Jesus and we feel like I'm the only one. Nobody else here believes what I believe. How could I possibly be encouraged to go forward in any of this? And God wants to remind us that you're not alone because what he, what he ends up telling Elijah is I've got, I've got 7,000 other people just like you that haven't worshipped Baal. And I'm going to turn you into an army, a force for good. I, I can do this. You're not alone, Elijah. And I feel like that's what he wants to remind us, that we are not alone. He has a plan for the future, and there's others. And Paul, Paul said it this way in Colossians chapter 1. He says, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all his truth. The gospel's growing. There are things expanding. So that's, that leads me to, I wanted to give you a couple stats about what Christianity is doing in the world today. And some of these, you, you can go look them up yourselves later if you, if you were surprised by them or not. Uh, but conservative estimates, most places that you go and look at the, the numbers of the studies, conservative estimates say there's between 2.1 and 2.3 billion Christians in the world today. And, and we can argue later about this. But yes, that, that includes Protestants, that includes Catholics, and that includes Eastern Orthodox. So people that have at least some understanding of Jesus and the cross, that's what we're based on, that's what we're following. 2.3 billion people in the world today. And how did it get to that point? In fact, they're, they're projecting that by 2050, that number will be closer to 3 billion because the gospel's spreading and expanding. In, in the year 100 A.D., so the disciples had gone all over the world, they're sharing the gospel. In the year 100 A.D., 70 years after Jesus had gone to the cross, there was one believer for every 360 people in the world. So they, they had converted 0.3% of the population. For all of our nerdy math friends that want to do the math, you can do that later. But that, that, was, that was the task they were faced with. We've been so busy. We've been doing this. It's been producing fruit. There's still almost 400 unsaved people for every one person. And so they kept sharing the gospel. If you fast forward a little bit to the year 1000, that ratio had become one believer for every 220 people. In, in the 1400s, it was one believer for every 99 unbelievers. So they, they had converted 1% of the population. It's, it's, it's on the move. It may not look like it. it what, what happens to a seed? How big is a seed when you get it? 
It's very small. Even after you plant it, you watch it grow. How many of you are really excited about what that seed has done after only a week? You're, you're still looking at, like, is it ever going to do anything? Is anything going to produce? But it's growing. It's putting down roots, and it's beginning to expand. That's what the gospel was doing. Uh, by the 1790s, there were only 49 unbelievers for every one Christian in the world. In 1900, that number had dropped to one for every 27. Where do we get down to today? If there's 2.3 billion believers in the world, and there's only a population of about 7 billion, that means there's one Christian for every two unbelievers. When you put it in those terms, it's like, wow, if if every person, now I'm I'm not saying all 2.3 billion are like radical, on fire, spirit-filled Christians doing everything Jesus says, but if, if everybody that calls on the name of Jesus, whether they're on fire or just kind of a nominal person, if every one of them would wake up and say, you know what, I've, I've got two friends that need to know Jesus, the world would be converted. This is an amazing time we live in. You know, the, the population of the earth didn't even get to be a billion until the 1800s. It's, it's possible, based on those numbers, that there's actually more Christians alive in the earth today than are in heaven right now. Come on, the, the math is kind of staggering if you think about it. Maybe that's just because I'm engineering in my background. More people convert to Christianity every year than all other major religions put together. There, there are other religions growing because they're having babies like crazy. But as far as conversions, Christianity is outpacing all of them. Every, every single day, most, most estimates say over 40,000 people in the world get saved every day. Man, don't we want to contribute to that number? I'm, I, I, don't know, I don't see Cliff today, but all I can think of is him sitting back there saying, Oh, I want to be in that number. Um, I want to contribute to that number. More, how about, how about this? I, go to the next slide. i got a picture. Here are baptisms happening at a, a secret church in Iran. Come on. Under a repressive government, there, there are more people in Iran that have come to Christ in the last 35 years than the previous 1,400 years combined. Come on. Talk about God being on the move and Christianity expanding. Uh, I also saw another agency working in the Middle East that said uh, more Muslims altogether have converted to Christ in the past decade than the entire rest of the time that Islam has existed. Talk, talk about things. You know, we see things like, oh, ISIS is torturing people and they're putting it on video. What does that do in the rest of the world? The, the devil thinks, oh, I'm going to inspire fear in all the Christians. In the rest of the world, you've got Muslims looking at like, that's not what I thought we stood for. And they begin to question their faith. They said that they've, that's actually caused more people to leave the faith of Islam and convert to Christ than, than we would think. Our, our missionary to Tanzania, he said he was watching Al Jazeera TV one time, and he saw an interview with an imam. So an imam is like the pastor of an of a Islamic uh, church. And this imam, he was like a bigwig in the faith. And he's on this interview on Al Jazeera. And the point of the interview was, I'm lamenting the fact that we have lost southern Africa to Christianity. Their, their effort to evangelize and convert people to be Muslims has failed in sub-Sahara Africa. And it's, it's been converted to Christ. In, in 1980, how many of you know where the country of Nepal is? Maybe you could find it on a map. In 1980... They could count them all. There were literally 75 Christians in Nepal. That was it. Today, the the estimates are that it's over 850,000. 
Nepalese believers. Because the kingdom's expanding. And we, we sit here in a place where we look around and say, oh, look how bad it is. We're being persecuted. Our next generation is going to pot. And believers around the world would be dumbfounded if we weren't optimists about the future because they see Jesus growing the kingdom and saving their friends and changing their lives. China is projected to have the most Christians, just raw numbers, China is going to have the most Christians of any nation by 2020. And in, in fact, uh, they are now the biggest exporters of Bibles. Come on, isn't that ironic? For, everybody remember the stories for years? It's like, oh, we're trying to smuggle Bibles into China and you know, praying that the, the border guards can't see them when they go across the border. And they are exporting. It says a Chinese printing company has printed over 50 million Bibles in 75 different languages. And you, you can actually buy one in China. You have, to, you have to do it through the organized state church, but you can purchase a Bible and have one for yourself today in China. Uh, in fact, I saw some stat that they think there are actually more Christians in China right now than there are members of the Communist Party. That's, that's how much Christianity has exploded in China. The, the Anglican Church in Nigeria. Here, here is one. that How would you like to be a part of this? The Anglican Church in Nigeria gathers over 20 million believers every Sunday. And, and the, the, the head bishop of the Anglican Church in Nigeria says it's not enough. We, we want at least half or 75% of the nation converted. So we're after more. Are, are we starting to grab some of this? That there is hope. There, Jesus is actually doing something in earth right now that he's calling us to be a part of it. So when we leave today, I want us to leave with an expectation that we're going to see Jesus on the move. And it's not just for other countries. He's not. He's saving people in record numbers. We need to say, Lord, we want to see that here too. Lord, Lord, do that in our lives. Uh, I think uh, it was the Joshua Project is one place I, I saw some stats. They they phrased it this way: There's been so many amazing things that have happened, and there's so much yet to do. Like we need to celebrate, God, you are on the move. You're doing amazing things in the world. You're saving and redeeming people, and we want to be a part because there's so much more still to be done. I mean, one, one Christian for every two unbelievers sounds like a pretty doable ratio. But when you think about it, those two unbelievers represent almost five billion people in the world today that need to know Jesus still. And we have a part to play in that. So what do I want us to take away today? Keep looking for reports that see Jesus moving around the world and the kingdom expanding. Keep fasting negativity and think about this question. Do I know two people that need to know him? Are there two people in my life that could deal, that they need to know Jesus and the good news that he has for them, and what can I do about it? That's one of those prayers, Lord, use me. That's a a short and simple prayer, but he'll take you up on it if you really mean it, and you'll see stuff happen in your lives. Let's go ahead and stand. And uh, Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what what good gifts has, has God been releasing in the world, what's he been doing. But I'll just leave you with that, just to think about the first step in, in anybody's life to things getting better is to come to know Jesus. They, they need to meet him. They need to, to believe and, and let him come by the power of the Holy Spirit and make his home in their life. And so as we're getting ready to go today, what I, this is a little bit different for what we normally do. I'd like you to pray for a second with the person next to you. And I just want you to ask them, say, tell me one name of somebody you know that doesn't know Jesus. And you pray for that person. And then you you give them a name and let them pray for your person. Can we do that for a second?
All right. So that, that means you can move right now. Just grab a person next to you and say, who's one person that you're praying for to come to know Jesus? And then when they give you that name, you guys pray for that person and then you get a name. All right. As you're finishing up praying for one another, and you, and you can stay after and pray a little more if you like. I just want to pray for us on the way out the door. Father, we lift up right now the, the people that we've been praying for all over this room. We thank you that you are able. What, even, if, even if one person in the room can't keep track of all their names, you can. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are able to come in the middle of their situation, wherever they need you and they need to see you. We ask now that you would release the power of your Holy Spirit into that circumstance. Lord, we thank you for new life. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for reconciliation and and rebirth that you have offered to us. And God, we see our friends and our family and our neighbors, and they need to know you so much, Lord. Release your life to them. And God, we just say, use us. Lord, we declare that we will be available for your plans and your purpose to share with the world the good news that you've given to us. We give you the glory, Lord. Empower your people. Bless us as we go from here today. And let our light shine for you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.